Uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, we're, we're told that we were formerly darkness, but now we are light and, uh, because of the Lord. We're light in the Lord. He says this. He says, walk as children of light. So even though we're in a dark world, the instructions that's given to the believer is we are to live uh, as, as light. We are to be lights. Today, I want to take you to a passage in Philippians chapter 2, if you'll turn there, verses 14 through 18. And, and what I want to look at in this passage, as Paul writes here, is three characteristics of light. And I want to do this with a purpose in mind. We're not just sitting here just for trivia, right? So we say, yeah, now I know Philippians 2, 14 and following, right? Uh, we want to come to the Word of God and see what the Word of God says so that there's an impact, right? It's not just a, a class. It's not like we're learning about you know, Pluto or something, you know, some, is that a planet now? I, I always forget. Some place far, far away that never has an impact on our life. This is stuff that we're going to. It's a living and active word of God that is going to work on our hearts and transform us, right? And so when we come and we look at these things, we come with a purpose. And the purpose here is that we could be more effective lights, right? That we could light up the dark world by being effective witnesses, uh, by giving, bringing the life-giving, the life-changing power of Christ to bear on life situation and show that God is a God who is at work and God is a God who is powerful and can change lives. So have you got, you go to Philippians 2? Let's read verses 14 through 18. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Now, we're picking up this in the middle of the book. I understand that. This is one of Paul's prison epistles, right? Why are they, this is a great quiz, all right? You ready for this? Why do you think they're called prison epistles? That's a tough one, isn't it? Maybe so. He wrote it from prison, right? So Paul's writing this, and this, by the way, is known as the epistle of joy. He's writing this from prison, chains, guard on either side. This is not, you know, prison with the TV and the weights and all that kind of stuff. This is prison where he's in a cell. It's, it's, they don't really care if he gets black lung. You know, he's in this nasty, dank, dark place, locked to a couple of guys and suffering. But yeah, when he picks up his when he pen, when he starts to dictate this letter, what is it about? It's about, hey, I rejoice. I see God at work. I'm thrilled because even through this, he says, even through this, some of, of, of Caesar's household is getting to hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's able to do what is so hard for us to do sometimes, right? Uh, get above the, the hard circumstance we might find ourselves in and see from a, the bigger picture perspective that God is at work and God has a plan and purpose in what he's doing and it's to bring glory to him. And when we get that into our mind and we're living according to the word of God and going, yeah, this is, ex you know, I'm excited that God's using me in this way like Paul, then we can rejoice, you see? Doesn't mean that it's not hard. Doesn't mean you aren't tears at times or even discouragement. But as we turn our focus back to almighty God, and the timeline of eternity rather than our point in history, we can rejoice. So Paul's in prison. And he writes to these guys who aren't in prison, by the way. And he says, hey, you guys got to be lights. We want to show ourselves to be a light in a dark, crooked, and perverse world so that God can be glorified. So he talks to him about these three characteristics of light. The first one is, and you, you have this, I don't know if there's an outline or not. It all kind of came together at the last minute. But the first thing is light shines, okay? Light shines. That's pretty obvious. We know that. Uh, there are things that help a light shine, and there are things that hinder a light from shining. He starts off here, and he says, he talks a little bit about the things that hinder our light from shining. And then he moves on to the things that uh, enhance the shining of the light. Let's look at the light hinderers first. He says, do all things, verse 14, without grumbling or disputing. 
You know, one night off the coast of Florida, a large storm was blowing in, and the, vi- the violence of the wind was so forceful that it knocked out on the lighthouse there, one of the, you know, the lenses that are all around, the light, you have the light and then all the little lenses mounted around it. It knocked out one of those things. And so water was coming into the lighthouse, flowing down. So the lighthouse caretaker there didn't really have, he didn't have a lens to replace it with. So he gets a piece of sheet metal and he screws it in there so that, you know, it protects the building from the, the moisture coming in, the light as well. In the process of doing this, he didn't really think about the fact that that's pointing one direction, right? And so at sea, at the same time, there's a captain who's gone through those waters many times. And he's searching for that familiar light, and he got confused when he didn't see it from that direction. And he ran his vessel onto the rocks, and the boat and all of its crew were lost. Why, why, why were they lost? Because the, the visibility of the light was hindered, simple as that. So as Luke chapter 11, verses 35 and 36 says, watch out that the light that is in you may not be darkness. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. We don't want our light to be hindered, right? We don't want it to be covered up. The, the, the city set on the hill is supposed to be visible, right? You don't hide a light under a bushel, Jesus said. So Paul talks about in our passage some of the things that hinder our light. And these aren't, it's not an exhaustive list, but there are a couple of things. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, right there. Number one, don't be a grumbler, okay? Grumbling hinders the work of the gospel. Now, the idea of grumbling, the Greek word here, is really, it's something that is mostly to yourself, it might go out a little bit on a private or a small scale, but it's mostly an inward attitude of the heart that is expressed at a, at a small level. Sometimes it never leaves the confines of that space between our ears. It's just an attitude that I'm grumbling about something. I may not even be expressing it. Sometimes it's expressed, of course. Dr. Dwight Pentecost says, this flows from an inner lawlessness and rebellion. You know, it's this idea that, that we think we know better of what this situation should hold. Grumbling is an onomatopoeic word. Poetic, poetic word. Uh, it's like buzz, you know, it sounds like buzz, hum. Grumble sounds like grumble, right? Grumble, 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 you know, kind of like that. It's an under the surface, covert type of discontent. Now, what do you think of when you think of grumbling? What's in the Bible? What do you, who do you think of in the Bible when you think of grumbling? Anybody? Children of Israel, right? Thanks, Mom. I fed that to her. <laughs> Children of Israel, right? They grumbled all the time, right? They grumbled when they were crossing the Red Sea. When they, when, they, when they saw the chariots coming behind them, they were grumbling, right? God had brought them out of Israel. Check that out. Out, out of Israel. Out of Egypt. Taking them to Israel. This is amazing, right? The Pharaoh, the most powerful guy on the planet, has now let them go. And not only did he let them go, what did he do? He had his people give them parting gifts. Here, take some gold. Do this, you know, go. And, and so they, they go down the road a bit. They look back. They see chariots coming. And what do they do? They grumble. They've forgotten the greatness of what God has done and begin to grumble looking at the immediate circumstances. They grumbled later at the, the waters of Mara because they were bitter. They grumbled when there wasn't food. Then they grumbled when they had the same food over and over again and got tired of it. They grumbled when they didn't have any water. They grumbled at, at Kadesh Barnea when the spies said there were giants in the land. Now, if you're Moses, you got to be feeling, I mean, at that point, you're like, I'm a little tired of the grumbling, you know what I'm saying? But you got to love Moses and you got to feel for him putting up with all that grumbling. But remember his perspective? I love this. Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, he, 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 said, he understands that their grumblings are not against us, he says, but they're against the Lord. He says, you know, your, your problem is a spiritual problem when you're, when you're grumbling. Because all grumbling is ultimately against God. Basically, when we grumble, what we're doing internally, okay, is we're saying, God, I know better than you know. God, you should have done it this way, God. Don't, you're missing it. You've totally messed up on your plan because if you knew best, you wouldn't be doing this, and here's the way you ought to do it. 
You should have given me a better job, God. You should have given me a better spouse, God. You should have given me a spouse, God. You should have given me a better financial situation, God. There's grumbling. Now, now, while grumbling is basically an inward thing, disputing, which is the second thing he says here, don't be a disputer, is something we do that's more open and outward, okay? If you grumble inside long enough, guess what's going to happen? It's going to pop out at some point. Don't go there. These things hinder your light that you're trying to show to the world. You cannot be a bright light like that. If you walk around all the time grumbling, if you walk around all the time disputing, and then say to somebody, hey, you want to know how to have peace in your life and find true contentment and happiness? Let me tell you about Jesus. You think that's going to be of any value? I mean, would you want to know from that guy about the greatness of our Lord and what he's done? you're probably going to be a little less receptive to it. When we grumble and dispute about our situation or the treatment that we receive, it is a sign, don't miss this, it's a sign of rebellion in our hearts against God. Now, we run into hard situations, amen? You understand this, right? This life is not easy. And there are a lot of things that, based on face value, it's easy to grumble about and maybe even dispute about, right? Right? But can I just say to you that there is a God who is on his throne still, right? He is a sovereign God. That means he's in control. He is a powerful God, right? Which means he's able to change it if he wants to change it. He is a God who loves you and is most interested in his glory and your well-being. Ultimate well-being, right? So, and he sees the end from the beginning, okay? He knows the whole thing. So he knows how it's going to turn out. He knows how many times you've been through a hard situation and go, you know what, I hate this situation for a minute, but when you look back on it, you said that was the best thing that ever happened to me because I grew in this way, right? So what should we do if we know we have a sovereign God, if we know we have a loving God, if we know we have a good God, if we know we have a God that we have access to, access to if we're in these situations, what do you think we ought to be doing? If I, instead of grumbling, what should I do? I should go to him, right? Pray, right? God, I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know already about my situation, but I'm struggling here, and Lord, I want to pray. First of all, if, if like Jesus, right, the garden, if, if it's your will, let this cup pass. But if not, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I will serve you regardless. And Lord, help me to glorify your name through this. Help me to grow, mature. If you're trying to teach me something, Lord, help me to learn it really fast so I don't have to be in this, this lesson for that long. We need to pray. Then we just turn the matter over to him and trust him and let him deal with it as he sees fit. As Christians, we need to be careful that we do not fall into the pattern of this world by grumbling and disputing which will end up hindering our ability to shine as lights in this world. Those are some light hinders. They're not all of them, right? But there's some that are pretty easy to fall into, even for good Christians who love the Lord. He doesn't stop there. They don't just say don't. You know, that's the legalist way is a bunch of don'ts, right? He, now he says do, okay? Instead of just light hinderers, now he talks about some light helpers, okay? These are things that will enhance our ability to shine as lights for the, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. He says, do not grumble, right? He says, don't, don't dispute, right? He says, so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Now, he has three important virtues here that enhance our ability to, to shine. And I love this because to me, it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's light. You know, I can turn on a flashlight in here right now and shine it around. And you're going, yeah, I can see that it's turned on probably if it's facing my direction. But if we shut the curtains and all that kind of stuff and turn this thing off, all the lights off, and it was nighttime, and I turn that thing on, it'd have a lot more brilliance to it, wouldn't it? Same light, just show up a little better, right? It's kind of like when you go to the jeweler, right? If you go to a jeweler and you're going to buy a diamond, what do they always do? They always get out that little, that little thing that folds open, right, that has on the inside. What's on the inside? Velvet, black velvet, right? 
It's a soft kind of fancy material. And they put that diamond or whatever on there. And what happens? Man, the facets, all that just pops, right? Because it, you can see the contrast, okay? Now, we're to be contrast to the world around us. It's a crooked and perverse generation we live in, according to our passage, right? So when we fall into their patterns, grumbling, disputing, we don't look so different, so we don't stand out. But when we live as lights, blameless, innocent, and above reproach, then we stand out more, and the light can be more visible. You understand where I'm going with? Give me one of those if you do. All right? So he, he gives these three virtues. One of them, the first one is blameless. The idea of blameless is, is without defect. It's unblemished. It suggests that there's a purity in your life that is both undeniable and unhypocritical. Now, it's, what it's not saying, and I don't want you to get caught up in this too far, it's not saying you're sinless. All scripture, the analogy of scripture hermeneutics tells us that we cannot have scripture rightly interpreted, interpreted that, that contradicts another one. So we understand that we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven, right? We're not thrilled about that, but we get it. Okay, so this is not saying that you're never, you've reached a point where you don't sin anymore. That ain't going to happen until glorification, you know what I'm saying? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the pro progress of sanctification, we are being conformed more and more in, to his image. 2 Corinthians 3.18, from glory to glory, right? So we're being transformed. And, and as the pattern of our life grows, the, 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 the look, the, our likeness to Christ is more and more apparent as we grow and mature. Isn't that nice? That he's shaping us like a, like a great sculpture, taking that old lump of marble or clay, clay or something and just until it's a beautiful object to behold. That's what he's doing. He's changing us. So our, our pattern of life is to be blameless. That, that means that when we sin... What do we do? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? We go back to the ones that may, we may have affected with our sin and ask for their forgiveness and give them a reason why, right? I mean, there in your sin where Satan's going, oh, I got that Christian to sin. Hi, you know, he's all excited and everything. And then you go, wait a minute, you're convicted of your sin by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and you go, Lord, forgive me, please forgive me, and, and I'm going to put some steps in my life that need to happen. I'm going to make even restitution if that's need to be, and I'm going to go back to this person I've wronged or responded poorly to, and I'm going to talk to him about it, and it's a victory for, for Christ, right? Not the enemy anymore, even though it was a sin. It's one of those ways that God causes all things to work together for good. Absolutely amazing. Blameless. Number two, he says, innocent. Innocent is the idea of unmixed, unadulterated, undiluted. The Greeks would say, they'd use this word when they were talking about their wine, saying this wine is innocent, meaning it's pure wine. It's not mixed with water, watered-down wine. The idea of what it means here in our passage to us, it's the idea of being unaffected by the world. How's that? Not buying into the world system not buying into the world's values and the world's pleasures. It was used by the Greeks also to denote something that was poison-free. Now, see, you see where we're coming from, right? We live in this world, don't we? And this world, like it says, is twisted and, and it's uh, perverted. And it's very easy for us to let the world around us shape us and our value systems and the things that are important to us. It really is, because that's it's what we're around in real life here so much, it seems like. You remember Romans 12? Beautiful passage, of course. Romans 12, verse 2. This, is, this fits into this so well. What does it say there? It says, do not be, what does it say? You remember? Conformed, right? Mom, you're going to have to let somebody else answer, okay? <laughs> Can't take her anywhere. Do not be conformed. And that word literally means do not be pressed into the mold of this world. I love that picture, right? Do not be conformed to this world, but be what? <laughs> Transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? So that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is yeah. So we don't want to be pressed in to the mold of this world. And I'm afraid we fall into the, that trap all too often and probably don't even realize it a lot of times when we're doing it. Too often we think like the world, we reason like the world, we desire the world's things. 
And God must look grieved and, and say, why are you trading in the wonderful things I've given you for what this world's offering you? It's like trading a, a mountain of, of a noble riches for like a chewed up stick of gum. Why would you do that? Let's, let's don't be worldly in our thoughts, our motives, our actions. Let's be heavenly in our perspective. So that's what he's talking about. Be innocent. Be, be transformed by the renewing your mind by God rather than being conformed into the image of this world. And then thirdly, he says, above reproach. That's real close, closely related to blameless. It was used of the, the sacrificial lambs, meaning free from blemish, acceptable to God. And, and like every spiritual virtue, being above reproach is, is impossible in our own power to start with, right? But as Jude 24 says, it's only the unblemished and spotless Christ himself who is able to keep us from stumbling, right? And make us stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, without great joy. You get, the, you get the story, right? These virtues are talking about that we live differently than the world around us. I'm not talking Amish. You understand this, right? I'm not saying cut off your electricity. I'm saying that we live according to the word of God. And that means that I am constantly having to be transformed by the word of God because the natural man fights that, Right? But God has changed us, right? We're new creatures. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He's, he's done this amazing transforming work. So he did the transforming work. He's given us his spirit that indwells us. So when we're starting down that path, guess what? The spirit's going, uh, hey. Now, we steer the conscience and do that kind of stuff pretty well. But the spirit of God is there saying, you know better than this, even if you haven't got to that passage in Habakkuk yet. And then he gives us the word of God, which is to dwell in us richly, Colossians chapter 3, right? And, we're, and to, be a part, to teach us, what is the mind of God like? How, how are we to be transformed? What are his values so that we, get, if we're not being exposed to his values and, and his word on a regular basis, but yet we're being exposed to the world's values daily out there, right? Who do you think is going to win that battle? if we give all of our attention to the world and very little of our attention to God. Did you read your Bible today? I don't know. I didn't really have time, you know. By the time I went to the gym and by the time I ate and you know, work and all this kind of stuff, I didn't have any time left to get into the Word of God. Well, something's got to change, right? Right? I mean, we got we to gotta order our lives in such a way that we can discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. He's not asking us to do something that we cannot do. That would be unfair. That's not, that's not our God. We're called to be different. And in order to do that, we must be exposed to him regularly, submitting to the word of God by the spirit of God and living in a way that the light shines brighter against the dark backdrop of a crooked and perverse generation. When others look at us, when, when, when the people I work with, when the people in my neighborhood look at me, what do they see? Where, what, where, what are my inconsistencies? How can I better reflect Christ to them? We all need to ask ourselves that question. Do they see Christ in an ever-increasing uh, quantity in our life? Light shines. Light shines. That's the first one. Okay, number two. Light also shares, okay? Look back at verses 15 and 16. That you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. When light shines, two things are accomplished, okay? Number one, darkness is overcome, Number two, direction is offered. Okay, first, darkness is overcome. Verse 15, as I've said already, notes that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. You'll, you'll note that God did not save us by taking us out of the world. He saved us as we continue to live here in this world. He left us here to reach others. Don't be deceived because even while he's left you here, don't take that as meaning, oh, well, it's all, everything's good. 
he, he, we're reminded by Paul that the world is crooked and perverse. Now, Paul's not being complimentary here. You may have figured that out. Crooked is a Greek word, scolios, right? Got some medical folks in here, right? So you ever heard of, what is it, scoliosis? What does that mean? It means that your spine is what? Curved, bent, crooked, something like that, right? Uh, curvature of the spine is what's being described there. The world's thinking and logic is, is curved and twisted by a dark mind. You, you, you know this, right? And if you don't know this, read the responses to a letter to the editor in the religious section talking about something moral, or better yet, let's update that a little bit. Go to you know, Google or Yahoo or something where there's an article on something about something to do with Christianity and read the comment section. Wow. All over the place, right? I don't, by the way, don't do that. It's a waste of time. But at the same time, there's other things. Take something else out of the sermon, not that one. But the, what you'll find if you were to have done that, which you don't have to, take my word for it, is it is a bunch of just perverted thinking. There's, it couldn't be so far off of who God is, what God thinks, what God does, is there a God. All that stuff is way out of whack. The world has a distorted view of God. It has a distorted view of Scripture. It has a distorted view of what morality and moral values are. And it has a distorted view of pleasure as well. So all this stuff adds up to a messed up situation. It's crooked. Scolios. It's also perverse. It's a similar idea, but in a more active and dynamic form. It's actively twisted, <laughs> okay, is the idea here. I mean, if you don't think so, I mean, you, I mean, when was that? How long ago was that? You remember the, when they looked into the National Endowment for the Arts? Five, seven, ten years ago, something like that. And they were going, look at the stuff that this money's being spent on. Nasty, perverted stuff under the name of art. Well, don't, don't, don't hurt my expression of art, you know. A crucifix, art, this is an art. A jar with a crucifix, the jar is full of urine. That was your tax dollars at work, my tax dollars at work. That is not merely crooked, folks. That's perverse. That's actively figuring out how can I be even more weird and creepy. That's where we live. We live in this crooked and twisted and perverse generation. We live here not as citizens. You understand that, right? We're aliens. There was a study done where they guaranteed the anonymity of the respondents to see where people stood on some moral issues. And when they got the results of the study, 13% said the Ten Commandments had any appropriateness for today. 91% said they regularly lie at home and at work daily. When asked to whom they lied, 86% said they lied to their parents. 75% said they lied to their friends. A third of people who had AIDS, carriers of AIDS, admitted to not telling their partners. Most workers admitted to goofing off an average of seven hours a week. That's almost a day. 50% admit they regularly call in sick when they're well. I mean, it's a messed up world, right? There's a guy by the name of Michael Moore. It's not that Michael Moore. Uh, who was at school at Rutgers, and he authored a book called Cheating 101, The Benefits and Fundamentals of Earning the Easy A. And he summed up the philosophy that's really in this study like this. These are his words. I don't think I'm making a cheater out of anybody. It's their choice, like drunk driving. It's only wrong if you get caught. <laughs> Where do you even see? You can't even diagram that sentence into its weirdness and perversity. But see, knowing that, by the will of God, we have been placed in this. By the will of God. Okay? Why? Why would God do that? To reach them, right? To reach out. Why is a lighthouse placed on a rocky peninsula? <laughs> it's not the greatest place. It looks great in the pictures. I understand that. But it's not a great place to live. Waves are crashing on every side. Winds are howling. You know, it's a pleasant place. Why is it placed there? Because it needs to be placed there. You never hear of a lighthouse complaining, why'd you put me in this rough, dark place? <laughs> but well, as Christians, we're going, why'd you put me in this rough, dark place? We're to be like in your kid's room, a nightlight, right? Overcoming the darkness with light. Sometimes people complain, I'm in an office where nobody, I have no other Christians there with me. 
That's hard, right? You may be in that situation. Um, praise God. Praise God that he trusted you and put you in that situation. Now go out and talk, reach some of them for, with the gospel by the grace of God. You see? Will you get some heat? You bet you will. Will you get to see a soul saved out of the midst of this? Maybe so by the grace of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Would it be worth it? So light shares. It's rays, and when it shares its rays, it overcomes the darkness. But listen to this. It also gives direction. Direction is offered. We're to be lights who, look at what it says, hold fast the word of life. I kind of like the King James here because it kind of catches the tense of the verb better. Holding forth the light. So it's almost like just shining it out, you know. Not in a way that's like my dad used to come in the room to wake me up on the weekends. Oh, I hated this. First thing he would do. I love it when my mom wake me up. Hey, darling, she come here and rub my back or something, right? Hey, I was 40. It's not, no, anyway. <laughs> my dad would come in. Now, there's nothing wrong with what he's doing, okay? But he would flip on the light first, which is like, ah. And then he would do this. He would sing loudly. Well, it's a beautiful morning, the light, and all this. Like, no, 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 no. I'll, instantly, I'm in a bad mood. Sometimes when we share our light, we can be more like my dad was. There wasn't anything wrong necessarily with what he's doing, but it was more confrontive than it was compassionate. We have the truth, man. And we're not going out there to shine the light on them just because we look at those roaches, watch them scatter, you know. It's not that kind of thing. It's that's us before we had the grace of God in our life. And we have been made ambassadors for Christ and given the gospel to take out there to share, right? This is a good thing. Let's do that. Now, sometimes people will look at you and treat you like you turn on the light and begin singing loudly because it feels like that when you're under conviction, but you're not willing to respond. So you don't judge by the response you get, what you do, but from your heart, you're going, hey, I care about these people. I've been entrusted with this light, and let me offer direction given by the Word of God, as I have been such a, I have benefited so much from hearing myself. We're to be holding forth that light. We're to shine forth the gospel and the truth of Scripture to the world. You know, when we were in Kansas and I was pastoring in Kansas, we live right next door to the church. Now, in Kansas, there's, it's, you know, it's Kansas, all right. It's it's sparse. Uh, no, not a lot of street lights, none of that kind of stuff. We were out in a kind of a rural environment. And, man, the, you, at nighttime, on a clear, clear night, which is most of the time because it hardly rained there, you know, stars everywhere. You, did you know there were stars in the sky? Maybe you've been to Griffith Park and seen the planetarium. That's what it looks like. But out there, it looks like that, like when you're outside, you don't need to go to a planetarium. But when the, and the moon, if it's full, man, it's like almost daylight out there because there's no trees, no hills, nothing blocking anything. One night I was walking after evening service back to the parsonage, back to the house next door, and there was no moon, clouds in the sky, so it was dark, and there were no lights along this path. So I'm like, it's okay in the parking lot of the church, and walking across there, but eventually you go between some trees, and there's just a small cutout, and there's a, a sidewalk about yay wide. And you know, I really appreciated the light of the moon that night when it was so dark. Never thought about the other nights when I went, or the stars or anything like that. But when I fell and ate it and tore my suit and all that kind of stuff and did it without grumbling or complaining, I might have. No. <laughs> Y'all be quiet. Anyway, you know, you really appreciate that. See, and what we're doing is, is, is the picture here is there's travelers on a dark path at night. One has a light and he's holding it forth so the other can see where to step. And that's really our calling. We're just light bearers showing the bright spot of the gospel. And the bright spot of the gospel is great, isn't it? I mean, think about it. You're saved not as a result of your own works. Boom. In other words, I don't have to be the one that makes it happen. And what's good about that? Because we've all tried to reform ourselves at one time or another, and we always fail, right? That's the whole New Year's resolution thing, isn't it? I'm going to lose 30 pounds this month. I'm going to eat right, whatever. And by the third, you're going to go, whatever's going on, right? Here's, this is the thing, you know, there, there is this, this desperate need 
for someone from outside to do something because we cannot do anything about our own situation. That's the bright light. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in a plan from before the foundations of the earth, came to do what we could not do. That's why he came here, born of a virgin, and lived on this world, right? He lived perfectly, by the way, without sin, even though he was tempted in like manner as us, but more, because we never even had to resist to the point of blood, Right? He came, he, the whole forces of darkness came against him and he stayed innocent, blameless, above reproach. And the world saw that and they were just so excited. Yay, he's here. Well, maybe for a day, right? What did we do? We killed him. Why did we kill him? Because we couldn't handle it. It was showing us for who we are. We should have embraced the fact that the Messiah had come. But instead, we kill because we just can't handle it. Because we're crooked and perverse apart from Christ. So Jesus Christ came. And you know what? This was not a surprise, the cross. You understand that, right? Jesus knew from before the foundation of the earth, this is where it was going. His time was going to come. This was not a surprise. This was not the devil finding a little... uh, hole in the armor or something to go through and kind of make something happen. This was the plan. When, when Judas was brought into the 12, it was the plan. So that Jesus Christ could die paying the penalty for sins. It was a plan. Not, I mean, on Passover, no less. Fulfilling the picture of the Passover lamb. And he died And he paid the penalty for our sins so that we could be imputed with his righteousness, holy, blameless, above reproach. How awesome is that? That's pretty good news. That's a bright light, isn't it? Not as a result of works, his works, not our works. Not by any other name other than Jesus. That's a bright light. You need to know that. Buddha doesn't get you to heaven, right? Vishnu doesn't get you to heaven. Uh, Your own, whatever you believe in, doesn't get you to heaven. It's Jesus Christ, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Acts says. See, the, the reality is the world is hungry for something out there. They're fulfilling it with perversions of every good thing that God has given. There's no doubt about that. But, but the only thing that can give any meaning is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ and transformed life. And we are light bearers and we're called to bring that. Okay? I remember when we went up to, the first time we went up to Yosemite. Who's been to Yosemite? Raise your hand if you've ever been to Yosemite. This place is just fabulous, right? Um, first time we've been there, I didn't know where it was coming in. We came in the south side and uh, went up, saw a sign, Glacier Point, this direction. So we turned, let's go there, we're down here. Went up there, went up, and as you round that corner at Glacier Point, if you've never seen this thing other than like Ansel Adams photo or something like that, man, it's just like, boom, it's powerful. The scale of it is immense. You just go, wow, what is awesome. My response is, what an awesome guy. But we're up there on Glacier Point, right? And I know something funny because there's a lot of little chipmunks running around, at least the time of year we were there. And if you came up to the edge, kind of near the rocks, yeah, those chipmunks are like, hmm, there might be food with these, right? They're like, they've been fed. So many times they're just like, <laughs> you know, they're ready to go. And if you held out your hand like this, they'll come right up to you because they think you're about to give them whatever it is you give chipmunks, chipmunk chow or something, right? You, an empty hand, and they'll come, and then they'll turn away. See, there's a lot of empty hands in this world offering all kinds of stuff to fulfill that thing which only Christ can give. And people like chipmunks are flocking to the empty hands. But what if there's never anybody there bringing anything of true meaning? We need to to be the ones that bring the gospel. We don't save them. You understand that, right? It is God who saves, God who draws, God who does his perfect work, the spirit transforms, all that kind of stuff. You're not sitting there getting notches in your eternal belt by doing this thing, okay? And there's another one, gospel shoot out, you know? Right? But what we're doing is we're bringing it, we're God's chosen vessel by which that comes so that he might, by his grace and for his pleasure, save some. The world's hungry for what we have, and they come around us, and sadly, too often, we don't even open our mouths. We don't share with them. We approach them with our hands empty and our lights covered. I like what Charles Swindoll said years ago, not far from here. 
He said, where did we get the mistaken idea of this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine? We're never called little lights in the Bible. We are stars. Now think about Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We are stars. <laughs> not because of ourselves. It's not like hey, we're stars, like Hollywood kind of stars, that kind of nonsense. But we're, we're bold, blazing, light reflecting stars. Let your big light shine, little fellow, you know? Then Paul's pastor's heart comes out at the end of verse 16. Look at it. So that, let it shine, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The word glory there is also translated rejoice. Same word, which makes that clear. So that well, I have cause to rejoice. We really see the heart of Pastor Paul here. See, a pastor's heart is filled with encouragement when he sees the fruit of the word in the people under his watch care. Nobody wants to toil in vain, right? For a pastor, the most discouraging moments are when people don't listen. When you pour your work and you pour your life and energies into reaching somebody or helping somebody only to see them take the wrong path. or You know, that it hurts. Nobody wants to toil in vain. A few miles from where I grew up as a child in Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, there was an old overgrown, some acres of land. <clears throat> and one day we were kids, some friends of mine, and I went exploring deep in it. We had no idea. It just looked like brush. Let's go check it out. Let's kind of go through the little forest, you know. And so we, we explored deep back into it. When we got back in there, it was the most amazing thing. I mean, we were just surprised and shocked because what we found in the midst of these trees and this brush and all this stuff was an overgrown estate. It's a beautiful home with an indoor pool that was filled with dirt, all these remnants of palm trees and this ornate stuff and all these structures that were just falling apart. And I thought, I think to myself as I reflect on that, how the homeowner planned and built and proudly kind of put this place together and chose the right floorings and materials and lighting and whatever else is going into it. And the, the efforts that the craftsmen took to, to cut stone and lay tile and now the handiwork's decaying and it's forgotten. And it's sad because it's like you wasted how many years of your life doing this? From vain? And it causes me to reflect where are my energies being spent, right? <clears throat> Am I spending all my dreams and hopes upon structures that decay? Or are we pouring our lives into other people for the sake of the kingdom of God? I'm so busy because I want my 401k balance to be such and such. Or I'm so busy because I want to have, have enough money to go to the finest vacation and stay in a great resort or something like that so I can have a couple of weeks off and be a slave for 50 more weeks of the year, right? That I don't have time to pour myself into the things that matter for eternity. We must be careful that we order our lives correctly, right? This is not a little timeshare that God gave us until glorification. Are we, this is a question you need to ask yourself. Are you pouring yourself into anybody for the sake of the kingdom of God? Are you reaching out to the people who don't know Christ in your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, for the, to, so that you might have the chance to share the gospel and God and by his grace might save them? Let's let our lights shine. Let's share our light with other people. And that's going to take some sacrifice, and that's the third point, light sacrifices. Look at verse 17 and 18. <clears throat> Paul says, but even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. He's a southerner, you all, you get it? Uh, and you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul had sacrificed everything the world had to offer, right? But he knew his loss was his gain. Look back at Philippians chapter 1. Verse 21, he says, For me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. He's talking kingdom labor there, right? And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's very much better, he says. Yet to remain on in the flesh might be more necessary for your sake. I'd rather be with Christ, but to stay and serve in this capacity, that might be God's plan for me right now. Then you look forward to chapter 3, verse 7. This, this epistle is full of, of his sacrifice for the kingdom, right? Which isn't really a sacrifice. You understand that, right? He says, verse 7 in chapter 3, he says, but whatever things were gained to me, he named all the stuff that was like cool stuff. You know, he's like, hey, you know, I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, the law of Pharisee. I got all the stuff. This is the, my pedigree is awesome. You're right. He says, man, I did it all that way for the wrong reasons and the wrong directions. He says, but all those things that were gained to the world, right? Whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says, I count all things to be lost and pass and all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things, and count them, get this, but rubbish, you don't want to know what the word behind that one means, in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know him. He's just getting excited here. The sentence is running on. Uh, And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, I mean, right there, right? I want to know him. Everybody, amen, right? I want to, I really want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Amen, right? I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Crickets. Being conformed to his death. I want to die to self in order that I may attain to the resurrection of death. Now, by my works, he's not saying that. That's not the point at all. But he's saying that I may see this thing finished according to God's plan. Not that I've already attained it, he says, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus on that road to Damascus. <laughs> Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, right, I press on toward the goal, that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the passion and the priority of his life. Chapter 4, look at chapter 4, verse 12. Even He says, I know how to get along with humble means, and I, I know also how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is good stuff, folks. What he's saying is, says, it's never been about my situation. If I got a lot, awesome, praise God. If I have a little, awesome, praise God. He's working in every bit of it, and that's, the, that's just the amazing and wonderful thing, and I can rejoice. Paul never, he, he held on loosely to anything he had, right? And it was all expendable in God's plan. So Paul here uses the picture of a drink offering, a priest, right? In the ancient days, would take a drink offering, wine or sometimes water or honey, and he would pour it out on the sacrifice in front of everything, everybody, and it would evaporate and disappear or burn off. And it's a humble picture. He says, even if I'm being just burned off, evaporate in this world. It's a picture of sacrifice and giving. You remember back to Romans 12, right? We are to be what kind of sacrifices? Help me out, Mom. Living, that's right. Living sacrifices. You see, most of us are happy to minister today, but few of us are willing rarely to sacrifice. Jerry Vine said that service not built on sacrifice is not ministry, but merely activity. I like that. I think back to David in 1 Chronicles 21, 24. You remember he saw the land that he wanted to build an altar for the Lord on. And this guy Ornan owned it. And the guy's like, oh, you want to build it to the Lord? Let me just give it to you. And, his, and David was like, mm, I want to pay full price. Because I don't want to give anything to the Lord that didn't cost me anything. I want to sacrifice. You know, when people get up here and think through the music, you know, this all kind of changed with John getting sick. So I got an email and like, hey, let me know what your sermon is so we can kind of put some stuff together that goes with it. 
that took sacrifice, that went into their weekend, different things like that. And when they practice and do all that kind of stuff, that's sacrifice. When your Bible study teacher teaches, he sacrificed time. When John preaches, he sacrificed time to prepare. All those things are ministry. When you take time uh, early in the morning and meet with some men at, at Starbucks to talk about the, the Word of God, yeah, I mean, that's the sacrifice in a way, even though you got Starbucks in your hand, right? It's a sacrifice of 4 or $5 at least. No. That's a ministry. Paul's not complaining here about being a drinker. He says, what does he say? Look at the end of verse 17. I rejoice. <laughs> oh, the great men of God whose sacrifice of others are powerful to read. I've got to tell you that. A guy by the name of Henry Martin, he says, let me burn out for God. Isn't that a great quote? Let me just, it's the same thing Paul's saying here. Uh, Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, he preached six years, not one convert, not one. Then he went to prison for two years. Prison. For what? For the gospel. For what he believed. He experienced loneliness in his ministry. He had illness. He had a loss of a baby son. When he got out of prison, his, his wife and his daughter died. But he refused to leave Burma. He wasn't going anywhere because he knew God had him here to bring the gospel. It was suffering and it was sacrifice. But, hey, I'm here for a purpose. And he said, these are his words, I will not leave Burma until the cross of Christ is firmly planted forever. 30 years after his death, somebody surveyed Burma and found there were 63 churches and over 7,000 believers. What a cost. But what really is that as a cost? A little discomfort, a little loss compared to the many souls who won't spend eternity in hell. And Paul finishes by saying, you rejoice too and share your joy with me. Hey, what about you and I? Is our light shining bold and bright? Is it? Or are we holding forth the beacon of the gospel of Jesus Christ for all to see? And are we doing it in a way that sometimes involves some sacrifice for God's word to go forth? Are you sacrificing yourself as a living sacrifice on the altar of God's word? Let's lose the worldliness and act like the lights that we are. He didn't say you can be lights. He didn't say, you have the potential to be lights. He says, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And we thank you for your word, for its truth. We thank you for the example of uh, men like Paul and the people that he wrote to. Uh, Lord, we, we find ourselves lacking in so many areas when we come to texts like this. But Lord, we do ask that uh, your grace would continue to be poured out upon us in such a way that we might bring glory to your name through the lives, through our lives being well lived for your sake and for your glory. If that means uh, sacrifice, Lord, so be it. If it means uh, sharing the faith, we know it involves that. Lord, uh, may we be found faithful and may we live in such a way that our light is shining bright against this dark world we live in. In Christ's name. Everybody said, amen.